Well, hello again. This is Aaron Brake, and we are continuing with part two in our series on pro-life apologetics. In part one, we set forward a positive case, the case for life. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back on the Freethinker podcast and listen to part one. Today, part two, we will be looking at six bad ways that abortion choice advocates often try to argue for elective abortion. So let's jump right in. Six bad ways abortion choice advocates often argue for elective abortion. Again, I'm indebted to Scott Klusendorf for much of the material here. Uh, check his website out at www.prolifetraining.com. Number one, abortion choice advocates often assume rather than argue. They assume rather than argue. Now, remember our tactic from part one, trot out the toddler. Many of the most common street-level abortion choice arguments or objections you will hear all have one thing in common. They beg the question in assuming the unborn is not a human being. Whenever you hear a reason given for elective abortion, ask yourself if this particular justification works for killing a toddler. If not, they are assuming the unborn aren't human. Let me give you a common example. Maybe you've heard this one. Back alley abortions. The law cannot stop all abortions. And if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous illegal ones. Now, how do we respond to that as, as pro-life advocates? Well, how does this example beg the question? Let's use trot out the toddler. Suppose a group of mothers were taking their toddlers into the back alley to kill them. But in the process of killing them, mothers were being hurt because they were using old rusty knives and were contracting tetanus. Should the government in this situation make it safe for mothers to kill their toddlers by providing new, clean, sharp knives? After all, I'm sure we can all agree that killing toddlers should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, of course not. Why? Well, because toddlers are human beings. In other words, what the back alley abortion argument is actually saying is that because some human beings die attempting to kill other human beings, the government should make it safe and legal for them to do so. But why should the law be faulted for making it riskier for one group of human beings to intentionally kill another group of innocent human beings? This argument assumes the unborn are not human. Further, it's true that the law can't stop all abortions. Laws against rape and murder can't stop all rapes and murders either. But that doesn't justify legalizing those behaviors. It's the same with abortion. Finally, every death from self-induced abortion is a tragedy. Every one. But no one is forcing women to have back alley abortions. They choose to have them. As a pro-life community, we need to surround these women and give them help they need. And we are doing that in many cases. Crisis pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics in this country two to one. So the first bad way that abortion choice advocates often argue for elective abortion is they assume rather than argue. Number two, sometimes they attack rather than argue. Now, in part one, the case for life, I already addressed one way that male pro-life advocates are attacked, and that is by attacking their gender rather than their arguments. But there are other ways pro-life advocates may be attacked and an assortment of distractions that can enter into the conversation. Here's another one maybe you've heard. Pro-life advocates have no right to oppose abortion unless they are willing to adopt all of the unwanted children. Well, how do we respond to this? We can respond this way. 
by posing a question. How does it follow that an alleged unwillingness to adopt first shows that the unborn are not human and second justifies killing them? Well, it doesn't. So right away, we know that this objection, like other personal attacks, is a red herring. Here's another question. How does it follow that an alleged unwillingness to adopt means pro-life advocates cannot speak out against the moral evil of intentionally killing innocent human beings? Imagine if I were to say, unless you are willing to marry my wife and adopt my children, you have no right to oppose me beating them when I get home. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. We certainly can't kill toddlers because they are unwanted. This argument begs the question by assuming the unborn are not human. Or what if we were discussing slavery and a slave owner attempted to argue, unless you are willing to feed and house all the freed slaves, you have no right to oppose slavery. Or suppose we are discussing human trafficking. And I said, unless you are willing to adopt all the children freed from human trafficking, you have no right to oppose it. When we change the moral topic that is under discussion, you can easily see why this objection is ridiculous. The fact of the matter is that there are over 1 million families in this country waiting to adopt, many of which are, of course, pro-life advocates. So this objection falls flat on its face. Let me give you another example maybe you've heard. Pro-life advocates are too narrow and should broaden their focus on other social issues, such as war, poverty, care for the environment, AIDS, etc. How should we respond to this? Well, again, let's pose a, let's pose a question. Let's just assume this is true. Again, how does it follow, first, that the unborn are not human, and second, that we are justified in killing them? Well, again, it doesn't. Can it be the case that abortion is wrong even if pro-life advocates fail to fulfill other obligations? But there's more to be said here. How does it follow that because pro-life advocates oppose killing, killing innocent human beings, they must take personal responsibility for fighting every possible societal evil? Imagine I were to say this. You know that American Cancer Society? Did you know they only focus on cancer? What's up with that? Don't they know there are a lot of, lot of other diseases and problems in society they could be focusing their attention on? But of course, nobody says that. We all recognize that the American Cancer Society is doing a great good. And in order for them to be effective, they must focus their time and research on one issue, not many. It's no different for pro-life advocates. Finally, while many issues are important, not every issue carries the same moral weight. Recycling is important, but it doesn't carry the same moral weight as dismembering human beings in the womb. Abortion is not the only issue any more than slavery was the only issue in 1860 or killing Jews was the only issue in the 1940s. But each was the dominant issue of their day. And I believe that abortion is the dominant issue of our day. Here's another example you might hear. Pro-life advocates should work to reduce abortion by focusing on its underlying causes rather than working politically to make it illegal. How should we respond to this? Well, let's just assume that pro-life advocates should focus more on underlying causes. How does it follow from that, first, that the unborn are not human, and second, that we are justified in killing them? Well, again, it doesn't. This is a red herring once again. Imagine I was to argue that while no one likes spousal abuse, the real underlying cause is psychological. And so rather than making spousal abuse illegal, what we should do is we should keep it legal 
and we should treat the underlying causes by requiring the state to provide free counseling and anger management classes for men. After all, I think we can all agree that spousal abuse should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, again, when we change the moral topic under discussion, you see why this objection is ridiculous. What the pro-abortion choice advocate is arguing in this case is that we should keep it legal to kill innocent human beings in the womb while focusing on the underlying causes that lead to the killing. But what sense does that make? Furthermore, every immoral activity may have underlying causes, including rape, murder, and theft. That doesn't mean we should legalize everything and focus on the underlying causes. Finally, why are some abortion choice advocates concerned with reducing abortions? If abortion doesn't intentionally kill an innocent human being, why should we care how many happen each year? It seems to me that only if elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being should we be concerned with reducing them. Number three, the third bad way. Abortion choice advocates often assert rather than argue. Now, an assertion is not an argument, and it's important to know the difference. An assertion is simply a claim or statement that is declared with no evidence or reason to support it. An argument is a conclusion that is supported with reason and evidence. Often in conversations, pro-abortion choice advocates will simply make assertions rather than arguments, and these assertions need to be challenged. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard this one. Women have a right to choose. How should we respond? The question you should always ask in response to this is, choose what? Because saying women have a right to choose is really an incomplete thought. What is it that is being chosen? Pro-life advocates are vigorously pro-choice on all sorts of women issues. I certainly believe in a woman's right to choose all sorts of things. Her own doctor, where she wants to go to school, who she wants to marry, where she wants to live, etc. But before we can know whether or not we have a right to choose something, we have to know what it is that's being chosen. In this case, it's abortion. So then we must ask the question, well, what is abortion? If elective abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being, why should anyone have that right? That is something that has to be argued for, not merely asserted. The fourth bad way, abortion choice advocates often argue for abortion. They appeal to absolute bodily autonomy. Now, the often repeated phrase, my body, my choice, is probably the most popular way to voice arguments from bodily autonomy. After all, a woman should have absolute and total control over her own body and should be able to do anything she wants with it, right? Well, maybe not. The problem with arguments from bodily autonomy is that they are only persuasive if a woman's right to control her own body is absolute, meaning she can do whatever she wants with her own body, regardless of how it affects other human beings, including killing her unborn child in the case of elective abortion. But this is ultimately the fatal flaw of bodily autonomy arguments. Bodily autonomy is not absolute, and I think each one of us realizes this when we stop and think about it. So first, let me give you a couple preliminary observations and then give you some examples of why I think bodily autonomy is not absolute. First, absolute bodily autonomy is false on the face of it. A woman does not have the right to do whatever she wants with her own body, and neither does a man. We have plenty of laws which restrict our freedom and what we can do with our own bodies. For example, laws against assault and battery, murder, rape, indecent exposure, etc. 
I can't walk up to someone and punch them in the face and then say, well, I have a right to do what I want with my own body. More to the point, laws and morality always restrict what we can and cannot do with our own bodies when what we are doing brings harm to another individual. This is exactly what is happening in the case of abortion, where the mother's decision not only brings harm to her unborn, but kills them. Now, this brings us to the second point. Second, it should be obvious that there are two bodies, not just one, the mother's and the unborn. While the mother's body is certainly involved, it is not the mother's body that is being aborted. It is the body of her unborn who doesn't survive the abortion. This fact is, again, confirmed by science. The unborn has a unique individual and separate genetic code, a separate central nervous system, may have a different blood type, and in the case of a boy, a different gender. So the question is not so much what a woman can do with her own body as it is what she should be morally and legally permitted to do with her own body that affects the life of her unborn. So are there good reasons to reject absolute bodily autonomy when it comes to the issue of abortion? I think there is. And I'd like to give you several examples. Now, many of you have heard of the drug Accutane, which is used to treat acne. But Accutane is also known to cause severe fetal injury and birth defects if women take it while they are pregnant. Because of this, the FDA actually requires women of childbearing age to be on two forms of contraception if they are sexually active. They also require women to take two separate pregnancy tests prior to starting Accutane, and both tests must have negative results. Now, these laws are obviously limiting what a woman can and cannot do with her own body. But knowing the effects that Accutane can have on the unborn, we consider these reasonable restrictions on bodily autonomy because we have the safety of the child in mind. What would we think then of a pregnant woman who knew the potential for fetal deformity and birth defects but ignored the law and continued taking Accutane because she wanted to avoid acne? Or even worse, what if she did it intentionally to cause birth defects in her unborn child? Would we consider her a champion of women's rights? Or is there something wrong with that? If you say there is something wrong with that, you are already limiting bodily autonomy. Let me give you another example. In the 1950s and 60s, a drug named thalidomide was prescribed to pregnant women to help treat nausea and insomnia. Now, it was discovered later that thalidomide causes severe birth defects, including being born with missing limbs. And so this drug is no longer legally available for women. How would we react to a woman today who illegally obtains thalidomide and intentionally causes her child to be born without arms simply because she doesn't want to feel nauseous while pregnant? Is she doing something wrong or is she simply exercising her right to bodily autonomy? Now, if bodily autonomy is absolute, then how can you object to her actions? After all, if she has the right to use lethal force, to kill her unborn because of my body, my choice. Why is it unreasonable to allow her to cause sublethal harm to her child by taking drugs to intentionally harm them? Although the unborn would be harmed, he or she wouldn't be harmed as much as in elective abortion. But if when you think about those examples, you have certain moral intuitions that tell you it is wrong to intentionally harm the unborn in spite of bodily autonomy, then that gives us reason to question bodily autonomy is absolute. In other words, there are limits. And if there are limits, 
then it doesn't seem elective abortion can be justified simply by appealing to my body, my choice, especially when we consider that elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. If bodily autonomy doesn't justify intentionally harming the unborn, then it can't justify intentionally killing the unborn. Now, this has led many, including some pro-abortion choice advocates, to reject arguments based on bodily autonomy. Pro-choice philosopher Mary Ann Warren states this, The appeal to the right to control one's body, which is generally construed as a property right, is at best a rather feeble attempt for the permissibility of abortion. Mere ownership does not give me the right to kill innocent people whom I find on my property. And indeed, I am apt to be held responsible if such people injure themselves while on my property. It is equally unclear that I have any moral rights to expel an innocent person from my property when I know that doing so will result in his death. Unquote. Now, Trent Horn in his book Persuasive Pro-Life provides a thought experiment which he refers to as deadly transfer that helps illustrate the problem with bodily autonomy. Trent Horn says this, Imagine we had an infant who was born premature, prematurely and was being kept alive in an incubator in the neonatal unit. Nearly everyone agrees that it would be wrong to kill the child in the incubator. But suppose we had the technology to transfer the premature infant from the incubator back into the womb of the mother. Could the mother then kill the child through abortion simply based on my body, my choice? Well, if bodily autonomy is absolute, then there's nothing wrong with the mother killing her child after being transferred back into the womb. But that's ridiculous. How does merely changing location from outside the womb to inside the womb turn a valuable human being that deserves to be protected into a disposable piece of property that can be killed? Now, all it takes is only one of these examples to refute the idea that bodily autonomy is absolute. The same type of reasoning that is used to justify my body, my choice, has also been used to defend other injustices in the past. Slave owners were allowed to treat their slaves as property. My property, my choice. Trent Horn again points out another example from the 19th century in a district court in North Carolina where it was ruled legally permissible for a man to beat his wife as long as he did not cause her permanent injury. My home, my wife, my choice but it is never okay to treat human beings like property. And just because you have control or ownership over a location doesn't give you the right to hurt innocent human beings who live there. That is why these types of bodily autonomy arguments ultimately fail. Bad way number five, used often by abortion choice advocates. They confuse functioning as a human with being one. They confuse functioning as a human with being one. Now, given what we already know about the humanity of the unborn, the next question we have to ask is this. Does each and every human being have an equal right to life? Or do only some have it in virtue of some characteristic, which may come and go within the course of their lifetimes? Now, pro-life advocates argue that human beings are equal by nature, not by function. In other words, you are not instrumentally valuable based on some function you can perform, but rather you are intrinsically valuable 
You are valuable simply in light of being the kind of thing you are, a human being. Pro-life advocates maintain that every human being is a human person. But many pro-abortion choice advocates argue that in order to qualify as a valuable human person, you have to possess some property in addition to your humanity. So, for example, abortion choice advocates might say, the unborn don't have the ability to feel pain. They don't have self-awareness or of consciousness. They aren't viable, or they don't have the ability to interact with their environment. Whenever a critic offers a quality or characteristic that they believe makes human beings valuable and grants them a right to life, you should always ask, why? Why is that morally relevant? Why is it okay to kill human beings who don't possess X, whatever X may be, and not okay to kill human beings who do possess it? Again, if you're going to say that it is morally permissible to kill a group of human beings because they don't qualify as human persons, you better have a meaningful answer to that question. Much of the time, what you will find is that these differences are just asserted. And they will continue to be asserted until they are challenged. So let's look at a few examples. You might hear some people say, well, the unborn are not self-aware. So, why is self-awareness morally relevant? Why is that value-giving in the first place? This is something that has to be argued for, not merely asserted. This criterion proves too much. Newborn babies are not self-aware either. Can we kill them? Some of you listening to this podcast right now are more or less self-aware than others. Does this mean you are more or less valuable or have a greater or lesser right to life? Remember Lincoln's logic from part one that we discussed. If you try to establish value or personhood on a degreed property, a property that you can have more or less of, then that means your value and rights will come in degrees as well, depending on how much of the property you currently possess. And what you end up doing is undermining equal rights for everyone. Here's another example that's common. Well, the unborn are not viable. Now, by viability, it is usually meant the ability to live outside the mother's womb. But again, why is viability morally relevant? Viability is really just a measure of our medical and technological progress. The more our medical technology increases with time, the younger the age of viability becomes. So if we are trying to use viability as a standard for human value or right to life, we run into some very absurd results. For example, if a child was born in 2007 at 22 weeks, she would be considered a full-fledged human person with a right to life because she is viable. But if that same child were born in 1907 at 30 weeks, she would be non-viable, and so we could have killed her. But that is ridiculous because when you are born has no bearing on who you are. Technology and time doesn't change the nature of the unborn, nor are they related to human value. Or imagine a flight attendant who is 25 weeks pregnant. Before the flight takes off from the United States, the unborn is viable and considered a human being with value and a right to life. But mid-flight, and as the flight attendant lands in a third world country, the unborn is no longer viable, and so we can kill him. 
When the flight attendant arrives back home in the United States, the unborn is viable again and magically becomes valuable with a right to life. But again, this is obviously silly. The fact that the unborn are vulnerable and dependent should cause us to have more care and concern for them, not less. Abortion choice advocates are attempting to argue that because the unborn are more dependent and vulnerable, that we are therefore justified in killing them. But just like newborns who are still dependent on their mother, the more dependent you are, the more you need the protection of others. How much more the unborn, who are the weakest and most defenseless members of the human family? What if, as our medical technology increases, scientists are able to create artificial wombs and the age of viability is conception? Would pro-abortion choice advocates then fight to protect human life from the beginning? Finally, whether or not a human being is viable is always in relation to their environment. The unborn are in the womb where they naturally belong. They are exactly where they are supposed to be. They are in the perfect environment for their continued growth and maturation. The womb was designed for them, and it was where all of us as human beings belong at that stage of development. Saying the unborn are not valuable human beings with a right to life because they cannot live outside their proper environment is no different than if I were to tie cinder blocks around your legs and throw you in the ocean, declaring you no longer to be a valuable human being with a right to life because you are not viable underwater. No matter your age or your level of development, viability is always dependent on your environment, and therefore, it's not a good reason for grounding human value or a right to life. Now, many of you are familiar with uh, Stephen Hawking, who passed away not too long ago. He was a brilliant scientist and a prolific writer. You also probably know that he suffered from a rare form of Lou Gehrig's disease, which kept him bound to a wheelchair and heavily dependent on others. He had lost the ability to physically interact with his environment on his own. But listen to what two biographers said about Hawking in their book. Quote, Stephen Hawking does not like to dwell too much on his disabilities and even less on his personal life. He would rather people thought of him as a scientist first, popular science writer second, and in all ways that matter, a normal human being with the same desires, drives, dreams, and ambitions as the next person. Unquote. In other words, despite his disabilities, Hawking wants to be considered in all ways that matter a normal human being. Now, what if we were to say to Hawking, well, sorry, Stephen, but what makes human beings valuable is their ability to function and physically interact with their environment. I mean, let's be honest. If this were about survival of the fittest, you wouldn't last two seconds. Would we then be justified in killing Stephen based on our criteria for human personhood? Well, of course not. Stephen Hawking is still valuable and possesses a right to life, not because of his functional ability, but simply because he is human. But if that's the case, then the unborn should be included as well based on their humanity. Whenever we attempt to separate human persons from non-persons based on arbitrary qualities and characteristics, it allows the powerful to oppress the weak and justifies disposing of human beings simply because they are in the way and can't defend themselves. But this is exactly what pro-abortion choice advocates are doing with the unborn. They are saying, 
the unborn don't qualify as valuable human persons because they cannot yet do X, and therefore we can kill you. But this confuses functioning as a human being with being one, and ultimately it undermines human equality and value for all of us. Stephanie Gray from the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform says this, The pro-choice view of personhood is human plus birth, or human plus consciousness, or human plus viability. But how is this different from those who say personhood is human plus white skin, or human plus male gender, or human plus an IQ higher than 70? Why not just say being human is enough? Number six, the sixth bad way abortion choice advocates often try to argue for elective abortion. They hide behind the hard cases. They hide behind the hard cases. One of the most difficult hard cases for pro-life advocates to address and which comes up in nearly every conversation is the question of rape. So I'm sure you've heard this example. Rape justifies abortion. Now, one of the reasons cases of rape and incest are difficult to address is because the women in these situations have been victims of a brutal, violent crime. Rape is a heinous evil, and we naturally want to show care and compassion and empathy in helping these women in any way we can, and we should. We need, as individuals and as the church, to surround these women, offer our support and help provide for their needs in any way we can. The pro-life movement is not just pro-child, but pro-woman as well. And this is one of the reasons crisis pregnancy centers in this country outnumber abortion clinics two to one, providing support, shelter, prenatal and postnatal care, as well as adoption services for pregnant women who find themselves in difficult situations. Now, in seeking to help these women, then when it comes to rape and abortion, we have to ask the question, what is the moral and responsible outlet for all the emotions and hurt in these difficult situations? Is it abortion? Well, that depends. Depends on what? Depends on how we answer the question, what is the unborn? If the unborn are human beings, then they are an innocent victim as well. It is the rapist who is the aggressor, not the unborn. So we are forced to ask another important question. How should a civil society treat human beings who remind them of a painful event? Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? So in thinking about this, we have to, again, trot out the toddler. Imagine a two-year-old who was conceived through rape. Can I kill the toddler because their father was a rapist? Is it just and moral to put the child to death for the crime of the father? Now, the abortion choice advocate might say, well, no, but that's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because the toddler is a human being. So we are back to the central question again, are we? What is the unborn? If the unborn is human, like the toddler, why are we justified in killing the unborn because of the evil circumstances surrounding their conception any more than we are justified in killing the toddler? Now, if you answer that question, no, it's not okay to kill the toddler conceived through rape, then what that helps clarify is that it is not the evil circumstances surrounding conception that is the morally relevant factor 
in answering the question, can we kill this? Because if it was, then we could kill the toddler conceived through rape as well. Rather, it shows that it is still our human nature that is doing the moral work with regard to abortion, even in the hard cases like rape. And I think that's correct. The reason is because how you are conceived has no bearing on who you are or your value, nor does it change the kind of thing you are, a human being. It is not the circumstances of your conception that is the issue, but rather the kind of thing that you are. You are still a human being. And if that's true, then the unborn are included as well as full-fledged members of the human community, since they share with us that same human nature. When it comes to hard cases like rape, there are two types of people who ask this question, the learner and the crusader. Now, the learner is someone who is genuinely concerned for women who have been raped, and they are trying to work through the issue and resolve it rationally. They are trying to understand the pro-life view. But the crusader is different. The crusader is someone who just wants to make you look bad as a pro-life advocate by appealing to the hard cases so they can create a caricature of you as cruel and completely insensitive to women. Now, one way you can tell the difference between a learner and a crusader is by asking a simple question. You can say something like this. Okay, I'm going to grant for the sake of discussion that we keep abortion legal in cases of rape. Will you join me in supporting legal restrictions on abortions done for socioeconomic reasons that, as studies on your side of the issue show, make up the overwhelming percentage of abortions? Now, if the answer to that question is no, then the follow-up question is this. Then why did you bring up rape? Except to mislead us into thinking that you support abortion only in the hard cases. Those questions come from Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. Now, here's the point. If the crusader is someone who supports abortion as a fundamental right that women can exercise any time she wants for whatever reason, then it is disingenuous and intellectually dishonest to make an emotional appeal by asking about cases of rape. In fact, it's worse than that because what they are actually doing is exploiting the tragedy and the horror of rape for their own political gain or so they can score debate points. They need to defend their case with facts and arguments. But as Francis Beckwith points out in his book, Defending Life, quote, to argue for abortion on demand from the hard cases of rape and incest is like trying to argue for the elimination of traffic laws from the fact that one might have to violate some of them in rare circumstances, such as when one's spouse or child needs to be rushed to the hospital, unquote. Even if you could prove an exception, it doesn't prove a rule. The abortion choice position doesn't follow by appealing to the hard cases. Now, some may still ask the question, well, isn't this cruel and uncompassionate? Do pro-lifers lack compassion? Again, Francis Beckwith, in his book, Defending Life, uh, states this, quote, Nothing could be further from the truth. It is the rapist who has already forced his, this woman to carry her child, not the pro-lifer. The pro-life advocate merely wants to prevent another innocent human being, the unborn entity, from being a victim of another violent and morally reprehensible act, abortion. For two wrongs do not make a right. What makes abortion evil is the same thing that makes rape evil. An innocent human person is brutally violated and dehumanized. Unwillingness to endorse unjustified homicide 
is no lack of compassion, unquote. In other words, if you were to ask someone, why is rape wrong? They might say something like, it is violent and brutal. It is dehumanizing. It is a gross violation of bodily autonomy. It is the stronger and more powerful forcing their will on someone who is weaker, vulnerable, and defenseless. But that is exactly why abortion is wrong as well. If the unborn is a human being, then the child conceived through rape is someone who needs our care and compassion, just like the woman. We certainly wouldn't put the woman to death for the crime committed against her. Why then is it moral or just to put the unborn to death because his or her father was a rapist? Christopher Kayser, in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, says this. Obviously, pregnancy due to rape is horrendously difficult. The just rage felt by those who have been sexually assaulted needs to be fittingly discharged. But is abortion a proper outlet? Abortion cannot undo what has been done in rape. Abortion doesn't even punish the rapist for what he did. Instead, it harms an innocent human being. Some circumstances, including those created by the evil choices of others, can sometimes remove the category of the merely permissible, leaving us with a choice between the morally wrong and the morally heroic. Unquote. Women who find themselves in these situations and choose life are indeed moral heroes and should be celebrated as such. As a church, we need to come alongside them and help provide them with care and support they need, finding humane solutions rather than encouraging them to eliminate the problem through the intentional death of their unborn children. Well, that wraps up part two and six bad ways that pro-abortion choice advocates often try to argue for elective abortion. Join us next time for part three.